So we're in Genesis chapter 1. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, this amazing part of your word uh, where you reveal yourself as the creator of all things, but also of us. And we praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So from poets to philosophers, from scientists to artists, many have tried to come up with a way of describing what being human is. What does it mean to be human, a human being? Are human beings just more successful species than others? Are we just a species that emerged out of um, the savannas of East Africa? Uh, More successful because we have larger brains uh, and the ability to create tools and communicate and tell stories. Is that it? Or is being human about uh, the human experience, our consciousness, the experience we have when we listen to a stirring piece of music and that feeling we have inside, Um, maybe all the laughter that we we share with friends as we tell a joke. Is it our experiences? Is it our emotions? Our feelings, our human feelings, is that what makes us human? Is that it? Well, today we're going to look at the, a key part of God's Word that explores this very question, what does it mean to be human? And we have good resources to answer that question as Christians because we actually have divine words here before us. God teaches us about reality here about who he is and what it means for us to be human. So as we've, we've gone through Genesis over the last few weeks in our sermon series, and we found here in Genesis chapter 1 that humanity is really the high point of God's creation, God's creative work. And God doesn't leave us in the dark about why he made people, why he made us. Today we'll see that to be human is uniquely created in the image of God as male and female for a particular and unique role within God's creation. Being human is a deep question, it's a wide question, but in fact it's a Jesus question and we'll see that as well. Let's get in the passage today, Genesis 1 verses 26 to 30 and I've got three points. Being human means being made in God's image, being in the image of God. Being human means God made us male and female. Being human means having a God-given role in God's world. So verse 26. And here we have this endlessly fascinating description of what it means to be human, don't we? Verse 26, it says... Let us make mankind in our own image, in our likeness. So contrary to what some people say, our species, our human species, is not just a collection of related hominoid-like creatures. God's Word says we are unique. We're unique. No other creature in this world is in God's image. But what is an image? It's a mysterious sort of word, isn't it? What is an image? Well, an image in the Bible is another way of saying an icon or an idol. It's the same word across the Bible. An icon or an idol. Now, my favourite football player retired last weekend. Um, There may have been slight tears 
Um, the great Josh Kennedy, full forward of the West Coast Eagles. Uh, and the commentators in his last game called him an icon of the game. You see, an icon is a symbol of something great. Like he's a great football player. But if you think of an icon or an idol in a temple, um, even today, or a shrine, um, they, they, these idols, they're meant to represent something, aren't they? They're meant to represent the gods. And that's what we've got here in verse 26. God creates little icons of himself and he puts them in creation. We, as human beings, are to represent God. We represent God. Human beings are, it says there, in God's likeness in some way. And so if you take a tour across the Bible, you'll find the image of God being applied in a couple of ways, two ways. There is a sense in which every single person, every single person you know, whether they are a Christian or not a Christian, whether they acknowledge their maker or don't, there's a sense in which everyone is in God's image. We're not gods, we're not divine, but we are unique, aren't we? We're designed to have a special relationship with God. And so the image is a core to our identity as human beings. And this applies in so many different ways. Have you got a sore finger? Oh. So, for example, the image of God gives every single person dignity. It gives them value. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. It says there that if you attack a fellow human being, you're attacking God's image bearer. In the New Testament book of James, in chapter 3, verse 9, it talks about our tongue, our speech, the way we speak. So it talks about the tongue and it says, with it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. You know, because all people are made in God's likeness and it gives people worth. So cursing someone's not on because of the image of God. Life is precious. That's the application, isn't it? Life is precious because of this God-given identity we have as human beings. So the image of God is actually one of those cornerstones for how we think ethically and morally about questions. As Christians, we look around us and see our fellow human beings, not just as people below us or people to climb on top of or anything like that. People do that, right? But as Christians, we're to look with the eyes of Jesus towards fellow, our fellow human beings as equals, with respect, with value, deserving of, in fact, our love. So no matter whether a person's male or female, no matter what age or age they are or what class they are viewed as by the world, whether working class or middle class, no matter what colour of skin, whether they have a rural accent or a posh city accent, all people have value to God and are to be valued by us. So the doctrine, the teaching of the image of God applies in so many different ways. So let's think practically speaking. I want to practically talk about the area of reproductive technology. You probably didn't think I was going there. But IVF, 
Think about that. Reproductive technology. As Christians, we need to think in godly ways about technology and reproductive ethics. We need to consider that in IVF, that embryo that's made in the process, that every single one of them is in God's image, inherently valuable to God and should be treated as such. And that means the way we look at some technologies, sometimes they might be right to be used in certain ways, at other times maybe not so right, under different circumstances. The image of God gives every single person incredible dignity and value and should shape how we view other people. So that's the kind of first sense of the image of God. But there is another sense in the Bible, another way of thinking about the image of God. It's the narrow sense. Although we were originally made to reflect God, in a sense we still do, we, we're sinful people now, right? Genesis 1 happens before Genesis 3, where human beings fell into sin. And sin means that the image is broken or damaged. And we see this in Colossians 3, verse 9, and Ephesians 4, verse 22, which we just had read out, that the image of God actually needs to be fixed in us. So Ephesians 4, 22 says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and put on the new self, created to be like God, in true righteousness and holiness. Ephesians says, Paul says there in Ephesians, that we were made by God to be like God in righteousness and holiness, but sin has wrecked it. In our rebellion against God, we, didn't, we don't reflect God, we don't image God perfectly anymore. We don't live in righteous and holy lives, as Ephesians says. In other words, we need to be new, we need to be made new. Yes, we're still human. Every single one of us is still human. But we're not as God intended us to be. We need the image restored. And so we've got to hold these things together, right? The glimmer of glory of the image in all people. And yet at the same time, we see that people don't reflect God the way they were designed to. The glory which gives everyone your neighbour, your friend, your classmate, incredible value. And yet also in us there's sin. There's brokenness. We're both glorious and corrupt, incredibly valuable and incredibly dead in sin. And what we need is for that sin to be dealt with, don't we? And the image of God remade in us. We need God's grace to restore that that which is broken. And so that's the first point, the image of God. That's what being human is. It's our identity, being in God's image. And so secondly, while being in the image of God is what we are, it's not all that we are. There's more. And so second point this afternoon, God makes us as male and female, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God makes us with a binary, right? Male and female. It's how God made it. He designed it. It's in 
our bodies. Jesus says, Matthew 19, verse 4, Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? Out of all the creating work that God does in Genesis 1, you notice here it's only that, that human beings are said to be male and female. It's only people uh, that the text makes note of that they're male and female because it's really important. It's core to our identity as human beings. So as Christians, our, um, our calling to follow Jesus is to follow him in the body that he's given you. I'm to follow Jesus as a man. Uh, my wife Sarah is to follow Jesus as a woman. Kids, if you're a, a boy, you're to follow Jesus as a boy. Girls, you're to follow Jesus as a girl. That's what God intends for humanity. We get to serve Jesus in ways which are fitting for men and women. Now, don't automatically think that being masculine means lighting fires and shooting kangaroos. Or being feminine means making macarons and knitting. Or we need to take our cue from Scripture, right? Not stereotypes. Uh, as what, to, what it actually means to be a man and a woman. And yes, there are commands, there are principles and patterns in Scripture about what it means to act as a man and a woman. But there's a lot of space in this to figure it out, a lot of wisdom in how this plays out. And we've got to be wise and godly in how we express our maleness and our femaleness. But the problem is we mess it up, don't we? We mess it up. Um, there's sin, there's disorder in what, what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. And the very idea of male and female is a contested idea, isn't it, right? Think about it. You know, sex and gender is a huge topic at the moment. And many people sense their gender identity doesn't match their bodies. And maybe this is a personal point for you. Maybe uh, this is someone you know and love, your friend, a family member. Maybe it's a friend in school who says that they're a girl now. And you and, you and they, they, you struggle with that. Until relatively recently, um, transgender or gender dysphoria was relatively uncommon, but not so anymore, uh, particularly among young people. And as Christians, we need to remember we live in a fallen world, and it, it shouldn't surprise us when sin affects uh, every part of our lives, even our bodies and the way we think and perceive the world our minds, our sense of who we are. As Christians, we should be compassionate towards people who are going through this and are often deeply hurt. But at the same time, we can be compassionate while still holding to what the Bible says, um, believing the biblical teaching on sex and gender is actually good and right. As Christians, we're to follow Jesus, we're to love His Word, and his ways, even when people think that Jesus' ways are wrong and harmful. So from Genesis 1, our passage today, it's pretty clear that God gave us bodies. And they're good. He says in verse 31, at the end of our reading, he says that everything that God makes is very good. And this includes being male and female. You see, our bodies, they're given to us by God as a gift and for a purpose. 
So the Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians 6, um, speaking about the salvation that we have in Jesus, 1 Corinthians 6, he writes, For you were bought with a price, therefore, therefore glorify God with your body. Our bodies, strictly speaking, don't belong to us in the end. Ultimately, it belongs to God. We belong to Him. And He made us to glorify Him, as Paul says, as in our bodies, as male and female in His image, not to blend gender or separate gender from biology. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul also says, among other things, it is a, is it a it is a disgrace when a man dresses as a woman or a woman dresses as a man. You know, our bodies are to be seen as God's gift, not to be minimised or altered or changed, but rather embraced as a created a moral reality. And, the, and if this is a struggle, and it is for many, um, then lean into Jesus, lean on Christ. His grace is sufficient. Trust his word, trust him. And what he says is, is true and beautiful and for our good. God is patient and he'll be with you as you walk through these questions. So that's the second point. God made us male and female. And so thirdly, we come to the role of human beings that God gives human beings in the world. God makes humanity in his image as male and female, and then he actually gives them work to do, a commission, work, a role to carry out in his creation. So verse 26, it says, So that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And verse 28 God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Now what we have here is um, what's sometimes called the cultural mandate. And it's this command that God gives humanity. Um, God gives us stuff to do, in other words. To be fruitful and increase. And also to have authority over the animals and birds and fish and livestock, wild animals and creepy crawlies. But notice the progression through the passage here. So it says, God blessed them, verse 28. God blessed them. Which is really the foundation of everything, isn't it? God bless, God's blessing. We get to enjoy a relationship with God. And he makes covenant with the people, as we'll find out as we go along in the next few weeks. God blesses humanity, male and female. Then out of this, uh, we'll see in a couple of weeks' time, we'll get marriage, Right? You get marriage, the gift of marriage. And one of the great purposes of marriage is to have and raise children. And children actually are always seen as a blessing in Scripture, even though parents might not think so all the time. Um, God, wants us, God wants to have more and more people in the world. That's the basic idea here. He wants people to reflect His glory, to image Him. And this in turn leads to human beings spreading out across the earth, which results in taming and subduing the natural wilderness, which we see over the next few verses, and establishes God, um, people's rule, human beings' rule or dominion over the creatures on the earth. 
So verse 28, see there, there's that word subdue and rule. These are strong words, aren't they? Um, Subdue there, verse 28, is a word used to describe what kings do. They conquer, conquest. And so the role that God gives people, his creation, people, is a royal calling. It's a royal job. Psalm 8 says that God crowns human beings with glory and honour, giving them dominion. God wants human beings to fill the earth with God-praising image bearers. And he wants humanity to enjoy and, and also develop the world he generously gives them. He wants us to cultivate, to build stuff, to plant things, to till, to fill, to create, to organise, to put order in creation. And verse 28 is a way of saying that God gives us a calling, a vocation. He gives us work to do in his creation, in his world. But then there's this, um, there's an objection that comes about now at this moment while I'm talking, maybe it's in your mind. Some might say, doesn't this dominion command um, give people a license to treat the world in harsh ways? Is that what God is saying here? So, for example, one Tasmanian environmental activist blames Christianity for the exploitation of the environment, they write. I'm going to quote, The right of human beings to exploit all other species on this planet and nature itself was scarcely questioned until the 1970s. Christianity's most influential interpreters, St Paul, St Augustine, St Thomas Aquinas, all denied that we have any duties at all to the animals and plants and to nature itself. They accepted man was the pinnacle of creation, holding, as the Bible states, a God-given dominion. Now, what is, what is that person saying? They're, they're arguing that Christianity is the problem, that Christianity, the Bible's teaching, Genesis 1, is the reason the environment has suffered. Is that right? Well, I don't know about you, but my newsfeed uh, on Facebook is always full of stories about environmental problems because that Facebook knows what I like to think about right? Um, so whether it's a forest being cut down or recently the rice grass in the Tamar estuary and all the silt problems. Now there's always problems stemming from human activity, right? Because of human activity, some scientists think that this, in this century, a third of all creatures are headed for extinction. That's mad. That's really sad. But is this because of Genesis 1.28? Is this... Is their critique right? Well, I don't think so. I, I actually think Christianity explains why there's these problems here. You know, sin is the problem, not God's command to rule, not the Bible's teaching. Sin affects every corner of life in this world, including the way that humanity interacts with it. The problem is that people don't live the way God intended. You see, in Genesis 3, the role that God gives humanity in Genesis 1, uh, 27 and 28, that role is cursed. You see that in Genesis 3. And to be fruitful and multiply, yes, we still are fruitful and multiply as a human, as humanity, but it becomes cursed, doesn't it? It becomes pain-filled 
and difficult. Child rearing and raising is hard. And also the role that God gives humanity to subdue and rule the the creatures in the world, that becomes cursed and toilsome. And it doesn't work the way it's meant to. And so we've seen both the glory of what it means to be a human, but also the grime, haven't we? The glory and the grime, the mess of sin. We've seen both the glory of what we are in God's image, male and female, and this incredible role that we have of filling the earth and ruling it. What a privilege that is that God gives us. And yet at the same time, we fall short of that. We're not doing that properly. We're in the thick of the grime of sin. Yes, still in God's image, but failing to properly reflect the God who made us. People struggle with what it means to be male and female. People find work toilsome and unproductive and sin's influence um, snakes its way in all sorts of ways into our work, doesn't it? And so, friends, this is why we need Jesus. You see? Jesus comes to the world to restore, to redeem that which has fallen. He comes to restore humanity to what we're meant to be. Let me illustrate it like this. Um, Let me illustrate it like this. In the year 1500, in the year 1500, so we're going way back, the artist uh, Michelangelo sculpted the Pieta. The Pieta is a statue of Mary and Jesus' mother. You know that? Yep, Jesus' mother, Mary. And she's nursing her crucified son. And it's an absolutely stunning sculpture, if you can Google it later. When Michelangelo finished sculpting it, he was only 24, by the way. Gosh. Um, It was put in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, the year 1500. And for nearly 500 years, that statue remained there, pretty much the way it was when it was put there. That was until an Australian guy came along and attacked it with a hammer in 1972. Right? With 15 knocks of the hammer, he knocks off Mary's arm, a chunk of her nose and one of her eyelids. And onlookers around at the time quickly grabbed some souvenir chunks of the Pieta. (laughs) Mary's nose has never been recovered. The masterpiece of Renaissance art was now a damaged masterpiece. It was in need of painstaking restoration. Over many months, the statue was repaired. The craftsman used a section of marble from Mary's back and the statue was restored to its original image. Friends, we're like that spoiled masterpiece. Human beings in the image of God, we're defaced by Adam's sin, our sin. We make a mess of it. We've not only been attacked by the enemy with a hammer, so to speak, but our own hearts lead us away from God, away from trusting in Jesus and living for Him. We're spoiled masterpieces in need of some restoration to be what God made us to be. But the glory of the gospel is this, that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
Jesus, you see, comes as the true human being. He lives the life we could not live. He images, reflects God perfectly. Colossians 1.15 says, The Son is the image of the invisible God. So unlike us, Jesus perfectly reflects God in his life. But he also perfectly rules and interacts with the world in God-honouring and ways, in righteousness and holiness. And he comes to restore broken masterpieces. He comes to make all things new. And if you trust in him, then you'll experience the wonderful craftsman at work in your life. The work of God, slowly restoring the broken, messed up, grimy, sinful masterpieces we are. In the Romans, and uh, the words of Romans 8, 29, it says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. God is crafting and sculpting, slowly but surely chipping away at you, at the sins in you, the weaknesses, your dodgy habits. He's gluing bits back on. He's giving you a new heart, new selves. He's remaking and carving us into his image and likeness. So that our hearts, our character, our morals, our minds are becoming more like his. And we get to live out this calling, our vocation, in every part of life for God's glory. God is making us, in other words, like Jesus because he shows us what it means to be human. Let me pray. Oh Lord, please uh, change us. We, we know that we are fallen. We're messy, dirty and grimy. We're in need of restoration. Lord, please do this work in us by your grace. Please be by your spirit changing us to be more like our Saviour and our Lord, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.